Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, new software recommendations from the real experts and a two-pronged approach to zero trust. It's Thursday, September 8th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Social Security Administration has two new technology leaders. Tim Amerson's the new Chief Information Security Officer. Sid Sinha's the new Chief Technology Officer. Amerson joins SSA from the Department of Veterans Affairs. Sinha's a veteran of the Internal Revenue Service and the U.S. Mint. You can read more about that story and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. The Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners at Defense Talks next Thursday, a week from today, at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The National Security Agency, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and the Office of the Director of National Intelligence have a new best practices playbook for software. The solar winds and Log4j attacks were just two incidents that caused the agencies to work on that guidance. Hillary Benson's Director of Product Management at GitLab, she's former product leader, technical collector, and signals intelligence analyst at the National Security Agency. Hillary, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What do you see here in the release of this guidance, this information from these three agencies that you think is important for software developers on the industry side and for practitioners on the government side to take away. Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so this this uh, guidance is actually pretty interesting. So not too long ago, uh, the software security development framework, um, you know, came out and provided general guidance uh, for sort of all government agencies, all companies, and in, in how to develop a, a secure software supply chain. And uh, the the recent guidance from these from these agencies sort of really dials into uh, what that means for developers specifically, and sort of the next level of detail of how you go about uh, developing and uh, releasing secure software. So that's that's sort of the the main point. One of the quotes from the statement that NSA put out about this is security is not just for the developer, which is why the enduring security framework will also release additions of this guidance for the supplier and the customer of software. Are those three components the key? stakeholders that need to be involved in this kind of thing, the developer, the supplier, and the customer of the software? Are there other people that should be paying attention to this too? Yeah, those those sort of, the breakdown of those three personas, if you will, sort of corresponds to what shows up in this secure software development framework. So uh, the way that it's framed uh, in that overarching guidance does sort of incorporate uh, all the different people involved in the process that you do need to consider. The guide recommends, my colleague Dave Nitschapir writes, agencies also use it to assess the acquisition, deployment, and operational phases of the software supply chain. And as soon as I read the word supply chain, the hairs in the back of my neck stand up because everybody's talking about every supply chain that exists. What are the potential risks, if any, in the software supply chain today, given this kind of, of security concern that people have? Yeah, there's there's quite a bit. So this guidance really talks about uh, all of the potential risks that you face in the software supply chain from, uh, you know, pulling in external sources uh, into into the, the software that you're building within uh, your organization to the code that you're developing yourself, to how exactly you build that code, to how you protect it once it's once it's running and performing its job. 
And so there's many risks that appear across that entire process from, uh, you know, leveraging an open source component um, in your software that that someone else has has developed to a developer sitting in your organization making a mistake unintentionally and exposing your software to some kind of vulnerability to maybe not protecting your build environment uh, with the right kind of authentication and locking that down to only the folks who really need to have access to it or locking it down entirely uh, to not having the right uh, uh, runtime security controls in place. And so there's just a whole host of issues here across the entire entire supply chain that you have to sort of look out for. On uh, Among that list that you just laid out, if we're plotting those on some kind of a risk management framework, where do some of those fall as the more challenging um, more potentially, I guess, dangerous is the best word that I can use to that I can think of, um, and and so on. Yeah, so I think actually one of the main points of uh, the guidance that has come out, so many of the challenges that folks have talked about in relation to supply chain security is that it's actually quite difficult to say in the absolute which of those things is the riskiest problem. Uh, and so what you really need is a set of processes and tooling that help you to reduce risk across every step of that life cycle. All right, so this is something that at GitLab we're actually pretty uh, very focused on <laughs> and, and provide capabilities kind of across uh, all of these different areas. It can be kind of a challenge, a pretty significant challenge for a lot of folks who are using different types of tools, different processes, their organizations aren't all on the same page about what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and so what we've sort of done is really drilled home on, okay, uh, from you know across the entire entire software development lifecycle, from from you know code to build to consumption, um, what are the different things that you need to do? And here's the tooling uh, in order to do it. And so that sort of helps folks to understand what are the steps that I need to take across the process, and how do I make sure that those risks that do exist in each step, how do I reduce them at each level? How do I manage them? Uh, if I have to make the decision that I can't resolve a given vulnerability, I have to let it you know, be promoted into a production environment, how do I manage that risk over time? Uh, and all of that can be, you know, quite complicated and difficult to manage if you don't have the right processes and tooling in place. And I think that's why, despite the fact that there's a lot of, you know, attention and priority being placed on supply chain security, that you still see these issues uh, day in and day out, really. Hillary, is there significance in your mind that this is a collaboration among the National Security Agency, CISA and ODNI? Does that give the guidance more heft, more juice, whatever word we want to apply? Does that make it more significant? And do you think that will make more people pay attention to it and pay more attention to it? I definitely think that when you have agencies like that who are sort of regarded in the government as um, you know, the, the specialists in this area, when you have them coming out and saying, here are the things you really need to think about, I certainly think that that, that gives, uh, you know, weight uh, to, to, the, to the guidance. And it also brings better specificity to what exactly folks should be thinking about beyond just this general guidance that exists in the, the secure software development framework. Right? It makes it more real, it makes it more tangible. Um, and it comes from, you know, folks who who should really know, you know, the the best of the best, right? Uh, who should know uh, what you need to be doing in these different areas. The the cynic in me reads this article from my colleague uh, Dave and focuses in on the word recommendations. These are recommendations. They're positioned as as you should do this. 
Is there someone in government or some organization or, or something that should say you will do this moving forward or is that just not workable? Yeah, I think there are, there's general guidance, right? Of like, here are the things that you need to think about. And then when you get down to sort of brass tacks uh, in a given, given agency, a given environment, there are rules, like hard and fast rules that folks do have to, do have to follow. Uh, and those are typically captured in sort of compliance requirements, right? And so I think the, the intent behind uh, this guidance is, you know, hey, everybody's environment is different. The software that everyone is, is building is different. And so you can't necessarily say, here is the exact, the exact correct process for every organization who may need to build software. Uh, and so I think providing is, is good, uh, is good of detail on what each of these each of these steps are to build secure software and saying these are the, the guidelines that you should follow. That then provides great guidance for individual agencies to say, well, here's what in theory everyone should be doing. What does that mean for our organization? What do we implement in terms of, of hard and fast policies? Is there a way to measure whether this guidance is successful or has an impact or is it just the fact that it exists? And since it's recommend, since they're recommendations, we hope people follow them and pay attention to them. And then we update as we see necessary. Yeah, I think there's a couple things there. I think there, there will be cases of agencies that will take pieces of, of this guidance and, uh, and implement it and, and measure it against, you know, defined metrics. Um, and, you know, it can be in the abstract, it can be kind of difficult to sort of pr- prove the success of uh, security requirements because you're sort of proving the non-existence of something, which is the non-existence of a, of a vulnerability or of an attack. Uh, so that can that's always that's always like a, a sort of a, uh, you know, standard problem uh, in the security world. Uh, but I do think that you'll see agencies picking up this guidance and, and doing something concrete with it and, and you know, attaching you know, KPIs and, and uh, you know, policies to it. Hillary, thanks very much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Francis. You can read more about the software guidance in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Voting's open now for the 2022 edition of the FedScoop 50. You can vote for your choices until the end of the month. We'll announce the winners November 3rd. You can find a link to see the finalists and place your votes in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Budget is one reason agency leaders say they may not make the White House's deadlines for zero trust. The results from a recent FedScoop survey show those leaders think it could take up to three years to execute that vision. Cherry and Sivignanum is chief enterprise architect at the National Science Foundation. He says the NSF is taking a two-pronged approach to zero trust. In the short run, we are accelerating on a couple of key priority projects. Uh, the number one, uh, we are implementing a digital identity with increased focus on human-centered design. This is to transform from the traditional identity management model to a phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication. Now, when we do this, we are not compromising on customer experience because that's really the key here. And number two, uh, we are implementing the next generation network security uh, that secures the agency's multi-cloud infrastructure including platform as a service, uh, software as a service, and shared service, because these are the next generation cloud infrastructure that that are tough to be confined within a network 
level security or traditional network security architecture. So we are looking at implementing secure access service edge and cloud-based security brokers. So those are like a couple of the short-run short projects. But in the long run, and, and what we are really um, trying to do is we are beginning to invest in developing protected apps. So apps can really operate on uh, platform independent or infrastructure independent um, are abstracted from this infrastructure and um, abstracted from the network layer. So it's really a true zero trust architecture framework. And, and the second one we are really working on is the top priority pretty much for everybody. It's really upskilling our agency staff on cybersecurity. Because uh, in my um, observation and opinion, there are two uh, key assets to an, any organization, data and people. And people are the weakest link in when, when it comes to protecting the data. So we want to really bring more awareness and enlighten the staff handling agency data and information technology. You've got a number of different silos, parallels, channels there, however, whatever term you want to use, Cherry. And how do you uh, how do you do all of the things that you want to do when you've got a number of different complexities, a number of different layers there? Sure, it's a very interesting question. Um, so first, uh, National Science Foundation is a single mission agency. Our mission is to really promote science research across the nation. Uh, when it comes to our central IT, uh, we have just one network, but multiple uh, functional silos. Uh, so the, to tackle these silos, we have uh, developed a common architecture that integrates the IT services across the silos. Um, this architecture uh, includes all the cybersecurity components to enforce the five zero trust uh, principles or pillars, in other words, you want to call them. Um, it is integrated into our change management process, such as uh, the DevSecOps, uh, end user management. This is where you know, we are really looking at uh, laptops management, uh, um, the virtual desktop, so the mobile device management. So the end user management is very critical as we go into this hybrid and distributed world. And we have also integrated this into our cloud ops. You know, the DevSecOps really focuses on applications for the cloud ops is much broader, how we manage our infrastructure in the multi-cloud environment. And finally, the most important part, which is the data ops. So it's the whole zero trust architecture is a data-centric philosophy, data-centric architecture. So we want to really focus from the data in the middle. So the data ops is also part of this whole uh, evolution. So that's how we are really marching forward with our implementation. Now, you mentioned all of the, the elements of the zero trust uh, executive order and all of that that you uh, have to fulfill. How do you go about structuring what you're doing, Cherian, so that it becomes a cybersecurity hardening exercise and not a compliance check the box exercise? So Francis, uh, this is a very interesting way to look at, you know, for the past several decades, uh, if you really look at federal IT infrastructure, how it has evolved, it has evolved with a data center centric mindset. Uh, so organizations, okay, again, this is just based on my understanding. Organizations that implement the zero trust solutions today with this mindset continue to persist in them, most likely are going to lead into a checkbox setup exercise. But to be more effective and efficient, this mindset has to change with the data-centric thinking. It will allow organizations to truly embrace the zero trust principles. 
what do you see moving forward as the way that you're going to kind of, you mentioned the five pillars of, of zero trust as well. There's opportunities for automation, I imagine. You want to make this kind of uh, a, a collaboration. You don't want to do work on each of these five pillars individually. What do you see as the opportunities there, Cherian? Yeah, so at the foundation, we track high priority projects with a monthly uh, program review chaired by our chief information officer. Um, it includes uh, the CISO, chief security officer, chief architect, and other, other stakeholders, like you know the program managers. Uh, the program managers are expected to report progress across the, the five pillars in a templated format. In addition, we have implemented an engineering review board as part of our change authorization process to get deeper in, insight into uh, projects like zero trust and cloud migration. So if you really look at these processes and the program managers leverage multiple techniques to bring insight to the leadership, such as analytics, orchestration, um, cloud native techniques to provide, uh, you know, the, the cloud, you know, various layers of the cloud. You know, sometimes it's software as a service, infrastructure as a service. So we have to look at each one of this from a different angle. So, so we are really using cloud native techniques and uh, that analytics that comes out of it and orchestration that comes out of it to provide this deeper insight to the leadership. Cherry and Sivignanam, the chief enterprise architect at the National Science Foundation. You can find a link to watch the video of the entire conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. And if you really like the Daily Scoop podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher helped me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop podcast returns Monday. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.